Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's our prayer, is that God would bring about the realities and the benefits of his kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. And so uh, we listened to Jeff talk about how Christ, as he was here and was conducting his ministry, had them report back to John the Baptist to look, here's the things that are already happening, and it culminates. The end of the list is good news is preached to the poor. And I would just suggest to you, good news to the poor is not just you got a home in heaven. It's way more than that. Good news to the poor is you no longer need to live this way. You no longer need to live under the shadow. And so in talking about what we want to do to help and change the reality of poverty around us and in our families and in our neighborhood and in our world, we recognize that we've got some work to do. So I want to point you to Colossians chapter 1, just two, two verses in our passage of scripture this morning. This is what Paul says to the church in Colossae. He says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. God in all, there was, there was no part of God that was missing. There was no way that Christ couldn't contain all of God. God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of the blood of Christ on the cross. Now, I want to tell you, when I read this, there's, there's part of me that goes, amen, hallelujah, and let's close the Bible right there and, 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 and just say, it's done, it's finished, you know, it's completed. That God reconciled everything, and he has made peace with everything in heaven and on earth through this sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And yet we know that there are people who have the freedom They have the decision and the choice to defy God and undo the good work he's done. We know that that doesn't arrive at great achievement, that it just falls apart. You cannot defy God and prosper. You cannot defy God and and experience blessing. It doesn't work that way. And so over and over again, the work of the cross is manifest as people are brought back and reconciled to Christ. And... I remind you of that because what I'm going to tell you next is where we kind of look at this and go, okay, this isn't great. This is really hard. You see, when we start talking about poverty and brokenness in the world around us and near us and even in ourselves, we recognized a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how we need a new diagnosis, that, that we tend to diagnose poverty as just lacking money and things, or the, the more accurate definition is a lack of material wealth. That's poverty. I don't have money in my account. I have a car that probably won't make it around the block. And even if it doesn't fall apart, it'll run out of gas on the block after that. And then we go, that's, that's poverty. And some of us in here have experienced that up close and personal. You know what it's like when you don't know where the next dime is going to come from. Now, some of us have lived beyond that, but in that sense, when we use that definition that that poverty is the lack of material wealth, we sell things short because we're just looking at the symptoms. It's like saying, wow, you got a cold, we need to get you to stop sneezing without figuring anything to do with a virus that's going rampant inside of you. 
And so we said, you know, we need a new diagnosis that gets us to the cause of the disease. And if we can get to the cause of the disease and treat that and deal with that, we can actually change things. I wanted to share a quick story here with regard to diagnosis and treating causes. I, I met a man recently, actually through the introduction from one of you, um, who has worked globally with leprosy. And he has worked with a foundation that has worked with leprosy around the world. And many of you know the effects of leprosy are devastating. If you get leprosy, um, you eventually lose the um, sensitivity of your nerve endings. And because of that, you tend to do things with your extremities that they don't heal very well. And eventually fingers fall off and things like that. It's, it's horribly disfiguring. Well, he told me the story that they had raised money for years just treating the symptoms. Let's get special shoes so that your feet don't have these problems. And let's, let's raise so that money so that when people get leprosy, they can go to a place where they can get treatment. And they were dealing with the symptoms. You have leprosy, and we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. And then they went through an entire philosophical change, a transition that was huge, where they said, instead of treating everybody who's got leprosy, what if we, and these were the words he used, what if we go upstream and treat what causes leprosy and stop it from happening. Now the truth of the matter is what he shared with me was when they did that and they said, okay, we're going to go all the way upstream and we're going to try and stop leprosy from happening and being transferred to another patient. There were people that already had it that were going to get left out. They were already infected and they weren't going to get help, but they said, you know what, if we go upstream, we're going to help thousands more than if we just treat downstream. And so I would suggest to you that there are a lot of causes in the United States, in Wichita itself, and around the world that treat poverty downstream. They give a place of shelter. They give some food. They come in in forms of relief that we talked about last week. And, and they, they treat the symptoms. You now have nothing and we'll make sure that you don't get evicted, that you don't go hungry, that you can get a job. But they don't go to the core, and we, we found out that the core of poverty is found in the brokenness of relationships. So when we change that definition, and we see people who say, you know, being poor really means I don't have access to people who can help me and guide me, and open doors where then I don't have to ask for help. And for many of us, and we don't realize this, and we don't, in America, we don't appreciate that we gained access to material wealth because we had access to relationship with parents, with teachers, with employers. Absolutely. Education is part of that. Part of that is we had access to relationship with church and pastor who would come alongside and actually work through what's going on here and not just go, here's another five bucks. Come back next week when you're out of that one. So we needed a new diagnosis. Then we take a new diagnosis. We have a new definition for what poverty really is. And then we realized that if that's a new definition, then we needed a new treatment plan. And the treatment plan meant that we moved from relief to rehabilitation and development. We can't just throw a little bit of money and put a little bit more gas in the car because that is going to run out really quick and then we're back there again and we're, we develop a cycle of poverty is what they call that. And we want to break that cycle. In order to do that, then we needed this plan. We need a different plan. 
And I just want to remind you that after that, once you have a new treatment plan, it becomes really, really critically important that you stick with the plan. You work the treatment plan. Now, what I'm about to tell you comes in the way of confession. I'm one of those guys, and I confess and I fully repent, but I'm one of those guys, when I feel sick and I go to the doctor and the doctor goes, you sound terrible and you look worse, I'm going to give you an antibiotic. We've probably all been there. And they give me an antibiotic. My favorite's a little Z-Pack. Three days and you're done. But occasionally they give me a course of antibiotics that goes like 10 days. And I got to tell you, I have a short attention span. And I have a, a very low level of tolerance for taking medicine. I just don't like to do it. And so I have a tendency to go partway through the course of antibiotics, and then as it starts to work and it defeats the bacteria in my body, then all of a sudden I feel better and I go, I'm all good. Forget the other five pills. And you don't finish the course of antibiotics. And in doing that, you make things worse. And over time, I feel better, but over time I'm doing things both to my body and to that bacteria that's in there that's now figuring out, I can beat this, that is really not helpful. That is, that is more dangerous on a macro scale. And so what our tendency to do is something similar to that with poverty. All of a sudden, I get a little bit of relief, and I start to do a little bit of rehabilitation and change some of the ways that I'm doing things, and I think, I'm not poor anymore. I can go back to spending money willy-nilly. And the trouble is, when we do that, we lapse, and we make it even more difficult to redevelop. And so we need to stick with a treatment plan. Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about what I know about plants. Oh, by the way, this is where I get a lot of this stuff. I'm leaning heavily on this book, When Helping Hurts. It's a great book. I have a copy if you want to borrow it. And uh, don't give me all the credit for what I say here. We know things about plants. And we know that every plan is fantastic and every plan is great and every plan works until you start to implement it. In fact, um, I've done a lot of reading over the last couple of years about a, a, a piece of our military that do a tremendous amount of planning, and that's the Navy SEALs. And there's a couple of guys that have started writing books. They're former Navy SEALs. They're not writing books about shooting and killing people. They're writing books about how you make decisions and how you execute plans because these guys have figured it out. They are probably the most effective military unit in history. And they do it in different ways than we've done it before. And so these guys, these Navy SEALs, some of you know them. They're the, they're the ones that got Bin Laden. They, they, they're very secretive. And there's several things about this that I find fantastic and interesting. And, and I hope and I pray that there's some way that I can implement in my life and in the life of our church. Because they've figured out some things that actually work. And the, the Navy SEALs say, you, you put together a plan, you put together a, a detailed plan, and you then train to do the plan over and over again. So maybe their mission is to go and to extract a hostage who's being held in a certain building. They will build a mock-up of the building, and they will try to get as much intelligence. They want to know as much as they can about that building and who's inside, how many they are, how they're armed. And then they go and they train, and they train, and they train. And over a course of 24 to 72 hours usually, they do nothing but go through the scenario. And when I go through this door, I turn right. When I go through the next door, I turn left. And I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And it's timed, and it's regimented, and they get it down. And here's why. 
They want that plan to become ingrained quickly because they know that as soon as the bullets start flying, human tendency is to go, ah, what do I do now? And the last thing they want is that soldier, that sailor, to go, I have no idea, and freeze or make a mistake. They want them to do it so that it is all from muscle memory and it just happens. I know that I go right, then I go left, then I go right. And then it doesn't matter. Explosions going off, bombs around them, bullets flying. They will follow through with the plan. Now they also say that every plan works until you get on the ground because then all of a sudden you find out that what we knew about the building and the hostages and the people who took the hostages may not be accurate. And so they come to the next step, which is you, you have a plan, you work the plan, you stick to the plan, you train the plan, you deploy the plan, and then when you get on the ground, you improvise. And they have this saying, you, many of you have heard it, improvise, adapt, overcome. Because once you get on the ground, the plan will lead you, but something's going to happen you didn't plan on. Years ago, I sat down with a financial planner, Kayleen and I did, and we were going through some things on our finances, and he had put together a plan, and it was great, and we were working the plan, and we got about two months into it, and something happened. I think, if I remember right, we had car trouble. And so we had car trouble, but we had this financial plan, and so we went out, and we got to get this car fixed, and so we took a whole bunch of money and we threw it at fixing the car and then we came back to our plan and we sat down with the financial planner and he said what happened and I go well you know we took like $300 to fix our car so we didn't have money to do this and that and put into our savings and I go you know it was just one of those months and then he said to me you know what in life every year there's 12 of those months Every year you get 12 of those months where you have a plan, but then all of a sudden something happens, something we didn't plan on, something we didn't anticipate, that we didn't know existed. And when that happens, you improvise, you adapt, and you overcome. Now for many of us, this hits close to home because maybe we had a plan for our life. You know, I was going to get married at 23, and I was going to have... 2.5 kids. I'm not sure how you do 0.5, but anyway. I was going to have two kids. I was going to have a boy and a girl. And then I was going to pursue this career, and I was going to go to the top. That's always our plan. You know, nobody plans to be miserable. You ever notice that? Nobody plans to be a failure. But what happens is life comes along and it throws stuff at us and all of a sudden our plan gets disrupted and some of us, when we figure that out and when we find out that our plan isn't going to happen, we are tempted to give up. You see, I had a dream of the way it was supposed to be and now I realize there's no way it's going to be that way and so I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to feel sorry for myself and I'm going to pray that other people feel sorry for me too because my dream isn't going to be realized. I want to suggest to you that in that moment when we realize that our dream isn't what it's about, that we become desperate. In that story that Jeff told in the video, John the Baptist is this guy. He's this crazy wild man who's lived out in the desert in the wilderness and he's dressed in animal skins and he probably doesn't smell good because he doesn't bathe often and he comes into town and he preaches these wild sermons and people come to him and they, they flock to him and they hear his message about turning from evil and repenting from evil 
And in, in the process, he, he is the one who baptizes Jesus. How incredible is that? This is the man who baptized Jesus and the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove came down and said, this is my son. It's amazing and it's, it's, it's miraculous. And then after that, what happens? He gets, he gets arrested and he's sitting in jail. And you know what? He is not going to get out of jail, not alive. In fact, he's going to get executed in one of the most heinous ways. And he is depressed. You know, I had this fire in my bones to preach. And I'm the one that ushered in the ministry of the Son of God himself. And here I am in jail facing execution. And I am discouraged and I'm despondent. And Jesus sends a message back through John's disciples. And he goes, you know what's going on? This is what's happening. God is doing what he wants to do. Your plan's been interrupted. But the plan of God is never thwarted. So I want to suggest to you that in thinking about how we help people around us, that we remember this. We need to keep people first. We need to keep people first. Now, that doesn't mean we give people their way. That's another thing. Because sometimes we give people their way and it's the worst thing they need. I mean, it's the last thing they need. And so in working our plan, we need to make sure in the plan that the people who are being helped are the most important factor that they are given prominence in this. Because here's our tendency. Our tendency is to formulate a plan and a program and we put all this stuff together and once we get it together, we're so impressed with the work we've done, the work becomes more important than the people. Systems then outweigh humans. And what gets served is not the people, it's the systems. This is what's happened in the history of the United States where we care deeply about people and over the history of the United States we were concerned because here are people who are suffering and so we put together some kind of a system. We put together a welfare system. We had a war on poverty. And we put together the system and it laid out and we, we were trying to help people and then as the system grew and developed over the course of years, usually about 20 to 30 years, the system gets to a point where it no longer keeps people first. It's about keeping the system going. And at that point, the system begins to degradate and dehumanize people. And here's, here's what I want to tell you. It's really easy for me to stand here and throw rocks at the government and welfare systems. Because everybody likes to do that. Even politicians like to attack their own stuff. Let me bring this a little bit closer to home because we've done this with missions. Oh boy, you weren't ready for me to go that close to home, right? World missions where we sent people over, overseas and we said, you know what? These poor people over there, they need help. And we put together whole plans and whole systems and we, we have done tremendous things. We've changed the course of history by deploying people to go to other people who didn't know about Jesus and the hope of Jesus. But over time, those systems become really important. And we raised millions of dollars and we developed these systems. And over time, the people there... Whoever there, uh, wherever there is or whoever they are, matter less than the system. When I was a kid, as a, as a missionary kid growing up in Africa, my mom and dad went out under the auspices of our denomination here in the Free Methodist Church. And back then it was called the GMB, the General Missionary Board. That's it. And some of you might be old enough that you remember things that came from the GMB. 
I grew up, and to me, the GMB was the Vatican. I mean, it was like the Kremlin. I didn't know who they were, but they controlled everything. They controlled where we lived. They controlled when we came back to the United States and when we went back to the field. They controlled who were around us and the work we did. And so they had this kind of this holy thing. I mean, it's like a college of cardinals. Eventually, I got old enough and I came back and I met some of those people and I realized the GMB were just people. But over time, that system, because it had been developed and used and protected and deployed for so long, it became a system and it was important to keep the system going and at places, not everywhere, but at places the system became more important than the people. Another iteration came in our world missions system, and uh, I'm going to get even closer to home now. So years ago, in Hong Kong, one of our, our, our godly, great, amazing missionaries, Alton Gould, who I love dearly, who's in heaven now, but prayed for me as a boy. He was a missionary in Hong Kong, and he noticed that there were children in Hong Kong that were going neglected. And so they started a a system of caring for these children on rooftops. If you know anything about Hong Kong, there's not much open area. So they would bring the children on top of the roof and they would play with them and they would teach them. And what Alton Gould did in Hong Kong was the birth of international child care ministries. And if any of you sponsor a child through the Free Methodist Church, that's where it started. And it went from there almost literally all over the world. And so we were sponsoring children, and there were people coming on, and I'll brag about this for a moment. Our free Methodist child sponsorship program eclipsed World Vision. We got more money to the children than any other child sponsorship program in history. Literally, that's true. But what happened overseas was that in some places, people realized, if I have a child who's in need... I get about 30 bucks a month from some American I will never meet. And math is easy, even for people who live on the other side of the world. So if I have one child that's worth 30 bucks a month, two children are worth 60, three is worth 90, and if I have four kids, 120 bucks a month. Well, in some places in the world, that's a lot of money. And so here's what happened is people were trying to figure out how in the world they could get their children, their grandchildren, their nieces, their nephews. We've got to get everybody onto the rolls. And then once they had them on there, that became sacred. And those people in those places were, how dare you take my child off of the rolls? And the worst was when that child got to be 18. Because I have been living on that money that came from some very noble pure-hearted American who sponsored my child, and now they turn 18, and I don't get that money anymore. And that child's gotten a great education because we sponsored them, and they're going off to work over there, and I may not get money from them. And there was great abuses and distress, and if you were to talk to Dr. Linda Adams, who runs our ICCM now, she will tell you about them. We're not proud of them. But what I am proud of is that she, along with the leadership of ICCM, they got together and they said, you know, we're not going to do this because it is more important to care for children than it is to prop up a system. And so we're shifting child sponsorship and we're moving away from individual sponsorship to sponsorship of schools and programs for the children who really need them. And so now there is a program in the country of Rwanda 
that provides a school for developmentally disabled children. Let me tell you, if you have a developmentally disabled child in America and you find it frustrating, imagine if you're in Africa. And there is no IEP at school. And there is no family therapist to go to. And it might be that you find a doctor, but they have no idea what's going on with your child who has some chromosomal defect. And so they establish this home and they bring these young people in who are very obviously challenged and they give them a place to stay and they surround them with people who will love them. And it's groundbreaking. But I know over time that program will become more important than the people are and we'll have to rewire it again. That's what happens. No program is more important than the people it serves. Because here's what happens. After a while, we defend the program. We no longer defend the people. After a while, we fund the program, and we're not really helping the people. And we need to be reminded that any plan on dealing with poverty must be a plan that is for the people. That, that the, the end goal is that these people get out of the shackles of poverty. So keep people first. Next, we need to go back a week in what I talked about last week, and we need to be reminded that relationships being built and restored are really where it's at. And so we, we need to come back again and again to this kind of this touchstone where we remind ourselves that forgiveness and restoration and wholeness of the person is what really matters. If we don't break the chains of guilt and sin... We'll go back to it again and again and again. And we'll just repeat that cycle. And when I say when we don't break the chains, you probably see her going, Pastor, your theology's all messed up. Jesus breaks the chains of sin. Remember what we read. He has already reconciled all things to himself and brought peace with all things on earth. I think that a lot of what we put in God's hands and we say, well, God's got to deal with this sinful thing is because we're not willing to deal with it ourselves. Things that are entirely within our power, but we want God to wave that wonderful magic wand and just take it away. Take away the addiction. Take away the bad habits. When we're not willing to deal with those and walk that hard road. Now, some of you walk that hard road and you know it doesn't just go away. It's something you deal with daily. And you deal with it daily, sometimes for years. So, we come back to the necessity of forgiveness, restoration, and wholeness of the person. Let me remind you of these relationships real quick, what really matters. First is that we need healing and wholeness in our relationship to God. We need to reconnect to God. We need to know who we are in God because that affects our relationship to ourselves. We need to know that we are children of God. We have been purchased by Christ. He died for us. He loves us. He's provided an eternal home for us. All those things so that we are not going to be swayed when the world whispers in our ear and goes, you're not worth anything. Buy a boat. You'll feel better. Oh, now I, I stood on somebody's toes, didn't I? You're not worth anything. You should go on vacation to Hawaii even though you have to borrow money to do it. Or here's the really painful ones. You're not worth anything. 
have another drink. You're not worth anything. Sleep with another person. You see, once we've connected to God, then we have to deal with ourselves. And we either have to decide, I mean, we have to decide we're either going to believe God and what he says about us, or we're going to believe the world and what they say about us. And I want to tell you, my friends, if there's one thing I can do as pastor is, is just enculturate in, in this church with we're going to believe what God says about us, not what the world does. You are children of the living God who is at work in your life and don't let anyone convince you otherwise. The next is then, as we come to live in that, it, it's going to affect our relationship to others. And I'm just going to go over that again because here's the thing. Once I believe the words of God about me, it changes the kind of husband I am. It transforms the kind of father I am, the kind of friend I am, the kind of person I am to strangers. I got to tell you that what I believe about God and what he has done for me changes me when I come and interact with a stranger because if I am his and he is mine, my level of fear should be minimal. It should be minimal. I shouldn't have to fear what my wife is going to say when I get home because I'm a child of God and so is she. I thank God for that every day. And that just can go on out to others. And then it brings us to this place where if this is true and I'm going to believe it about who I am in God and who I am in God with others, it's also going to affect everything around me that comes under my influence. That means that it changes my relationship with my car. It does. That means that it, it changes my relationship with my house and how I handle my house. And it's not just that I degrade how I value that, but I appreciate that this is a resource that comes from God. It belongs to Him. Some of you might have read, I sent out an email this week, and we're going to be sending these every week with just a little bit of encouragement about you and your finances. And the email this week was this. It said something to the effect, uh, the idea said, you know, your bank statements and your credit card statements are theological documents. <laughs> ah, Got to mess with that, don't we? You see, what we do with our resources speaks volumes about what we believe about God. And so these relationships need to be built and restored. Finally, I want to challenge you that we, we need to be people who avoid the temptations of seduction. Because here's the thing, we get seduced pretty easily. And the world around us, they have figured out how to do this in the most effective ways. And they start doing it to us very, very early on in our life. Now, I'm old enough. I go back that when I was a kid on Saturday mornings, Saturday mornings were defined by cartoons on TV. No longer have those. The world has changed. You can get cartoons all the time. You can stream them or you can find them on cable. But for my childhood, if you wanted to watch cartoons, you got up early on Saturday morning and you turned on the TV and you watched cartoons. And half of the fun was watching Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and those guys. The other half of the fun was every commercial that came by that told us about every new toy. Right? And so Barbie got a new car every week. 
And G.I. Joe could do things that, you know, with this new set that he couldn't do with the others. And, and then interspersed with the toys was this one, which I think is really remarkable and has probably done a lot to define our nation. But on Saturday mornings, interspersed with toys, you know what the other commercials were for? Cereal. Because we just got up and we're hungry and we're incredibly impressionable. And so now, silly rabbit. There you go. And it's just been ingrained in us. It's been ingrained in us that, man, this is what Saturday mornings are all about. And let me tell you, Kellogg's and Post and all those guys, they've sold millions of dollars of cereal to kids because mom would take the kids to the supermarket with her and as soon as you go down that aisle of evil, (laughs) you're not getting no granola. And you know where those sugar cereals, they're down about here where kids' eyes are. You see, the world spends a lot of time studying how to seduce us. And let me tell you, it's not any different for adults. It's just that the, what they're seducing us with changes. You know? When I was in high school, it was the double mint twins. If I chewed the right gum, I'd get to date pretty girls. Funny that didn't work out the way I thought it would. And I, no, no, thank the Lord it did not. It worked out better. <laughs> you, you didn't know where I was going. Here's the thing. As, we, as we're seduced by these things that get our attention, they tell us a lie that says you'll be happy if you just do this, even if the happiness lasts for a moment. That's the first thing. Plug something in that you really don't need. The next lie is, once we have a plan and we're going to work the plan, the next seduction that comes along is, hey, there might be a shortcut. There might be a shortcut. I don't have to work this hard to get that far. There's got to be a way I can do an end run around everybody else and arrive there without as much work. I have a cousin who, who has tw- spent his early 20s poring over every get-rich-quick scheme out there. I mean, he tried several of them, multi-level marketing things and, you know, buying certain property and flipping and all these things. And he came back to me in his 30s and we were talking about that. I said, man, you've tried a lot of these things. I'm sure you've made some money. He goes, you know what I've learned? Hard work pays more than anything that goes quick. I don't want to hear that. I'd rather be able to invest 10 bucks and get 1,000 back. And it doesn't work that way. So shortcuts seduce us. And for those of you who are more seasoned in years, let me tell you, you don't get over this. As we get older, our sense of desperation about our finances tends to grow and we do more risky things. Just going to throw that out there. Be careful of temporary fixes. I'll do this just for the time being. This will just get me through. But let's go for the long-term fixes. They may take a while and they may not pay dividends right now, but let's do the long-range fixes. And then I just come back to this. Remember that we'll be seduced by thinking our plan is more important than the people around us. You know, one of the wonderful interruptions that God makes, and I want to talk about this because it has to do with where we're at right now as a church, is God tends to interrupt our plans to make sure that we trust him more than the plan. Some of you have experienced that just as I have. You're, you're doing something, you're working a plan, we're getting somewhere, and then God comes along and he starts to do something, and you go, no, wait a minute, time out, Lord. I put this together, 
and now you're asking me to make an alteration. Now you're asking me to change things, and I want my plan to work. It's, it's getting me there, and now something gets in the way. Years ago, I had this happen to me physically. We were, we were coming home from vacation. We'd, we'd been here in Kansas visiting family. We were going back to Illinois where we lived. And um, I, I don't know what it was. I've had several theories over the years, and they all seem to fall apart. I don't know whether it was my sister's cats who were indoor cats with me that I spent time petting while we were staying with them. I don't know what it was, but along the way home, I started coughing. In the car, I just started coughing. And it was one of those coughs where you kind of know that man, this is not going away. And so halfway across Missouri, I said to Kaylee, and I said, I think I'm getting sick. We got back to our home in Illinois, and sick just went into all caps. And I got really sick. And I went in to see my doctor. And my doctor said, I'm going to send you to see a couple other doctors. That's always bad news. And they said, you know, I, one was a cardiologist, and one was a pulmonologist. And so I had to see him about my breathing and my heart. And then all of a sudden, you know, our plan of what we wanted to see happen and me just powering through it as a human being, as a macho man, was just falling, falling apart. And here I was, I couldn't breathe well enough to hardly walk across a parking lot. And I was wheezing and I was coughing and they listened to me and they said, there's a problem here. And so I went through all this testing and it didn't reveal things that we'd hoped. I was just sick. And they looked at my heart and they said, your heart's pretty good. We don't know why you're so out of breath. And then they looked at my lungs and they said, your lungs are fairly clear. We can hear some rattle, but there's no big clouds and we just don't understand this. And they put me on a treadmill and I fell apart. And finally the doctor looked at me and he said, I cannot explain what's going on. And fortunately, Dr. Wenthe, our doctor in Illinois, was a godly man who just did tremendous things for our family. And I looked at him and I said, Doc, I can't explain it either. All I know is I was coming back from being on vacation and halfway home I started coughing and now I can hardly breathe. And he goes, you think God's trying to tell you something? <laughs> Doctor, that is none of your business. That's what I wanted to say. That's really what I wanted. And I said, I, I don't know. And at the same time, I had injured my shoulder, and my shoulder was in terrible pain. And I was, and, and you know, he said, he goes, I'm going to give you a prescription. You're not going to like it. I go, really big pills, really nasty tasting. He goes, no, 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 no pills at all. He goes, you got to go to the Y. All the time. And, you know, I started walking on a walking track in the basement of the YMCA in Springfield, Illinois. And I could hardly go one, once around without being winded. And after I'd done that for a while, I went back to Dr. Wenthe and he goes, you know, I want you to start swimming. Swimming's really good for your lungs. And I started swimming. And then I started running. And he said, stay with us. And I said, what do you think this is? He goes, I don't know, but you're under a lot of stress. And something's going on with you and it's going to kill you. And I was so upset because we had things going in ministry and I was used to going 90 miles an hour and all of a sudden God threw the brakes on that and said, you know, I want your attention. I want you to do something else. And my plan and the doctor's plan were two different things. 
And as we talked that over and as we worked that through, I just thank God that he brought me healing. And I'm not in that place anymore. And as I reflect on that story, I just recognize there are other things about me that I wish were not the way they are. And it's going to take me walking diligently with God and myself and the people around me to undo those things as well. With our church right now, you know, we're struggling financially. We're, we've hit that summer slump. This year we adopted a budget that's pretty austere. And when you still fall underneath that, then austerity on top of austerity gets pretty hard. And some of us have made a plan and maybe we've deviated from it. I made a commitment to give to the church, but now I'm paying for other things. Good things, but not what I committed to. Or maybe some of us made a plan and it didn't include the church. And so I've been doing this and I've been giving money elsewhere. And when the church is struggling, we just go, you know, not my problem. I'm not invested there. And I just, I want to suggest to you that Christ interrupts those things. And sometimes he does them in the most uncomfortable ways to where you can't even walk across the parking lot without being winded. Let alone run. And then I'm reminded of Isaiah who says that they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. I don't always feel like an eagle. They will walk and not grow weary. They will run and not faint. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I want us to be so strong in the Lord that no matter what comes our way, that we face it with the strength that is a holy strength of God. That we do it as individuals, in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our jobs, but we do it as a church in this community that we go from strength to strength, not from weakness to weakness, not from deficiency to deficiency, but that we say, Lord, if you interrupt this, then you teach us what we need to learn here and provide. That's what we need. We need to be interrupted and we need to be aware of what will seduce us away from him. I want to ask the band to come back up. We're going to sing a, a hymn in closing. But as we do that, I may be, maybe my words have touched you at places that are a little bit uncomfortable. And um, maybe I have poked at something that you weren't prepared for.